Hello, and welcome to BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida and Marion, Massachusetts, hosted by Ed Shanafee, USPTA professional and international businessman. This is the podcast that researches and looks at the club management and facility side of our business. Hello and welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm your host, Ed Shanafee, and this week I'm really excited to have a good friend of mine I've known for years, John Flaherty. John grew up in Ridgefield, Connecticut. That was the town next to where I grew up, and we met years and years ago at my first ever job where I was assistant pro at Silver Spring Country Club in Ridgefield. Um, John has moved from tennis and competing. Um, He's moved into marketing and for the last 25 years has led marketing efforts for Rolex, uh, Rolex watches, and now he's with the S&P 500 company Gartner. He's a real expert at marketing to elite clubs and to elite audiences. John is a bachelor's from Old Dominion University where he actually competed on the men's division one team for three years and then he got his master's of science from Sacred Heart University where he actually volunteers as the assistant coach for the men's and women's division one teams. Gosh, men's and ladies assistant. John began playing tennis at the age of three. I didn't know him then, and I started at seven, so he, he started earlier than I did. I can't believe he was playing at three. He competed in regional, national, and professional level uh, at tennis. Um, we competed in the juniors in New England. He received his ATP points in doubles and singles while he competed on the tour for four years. I'm really glad that he has ATP points because he beats me three out of five times, I figured out. So I don't mind losing that much to a guy that has got ATP points. He competes now in the USTA League. He runs his team up there, uh, 4-5 team up in Westchester, New York, and I know he's better than a 4-5. Never trust those ratings, right? He's never given up his passion for the game. That comes out in our interview. And he's actually written for Inside Tennis and Tennis Match Magazine, and he served as the official racket reviewer for Tennis Magazine. We're really happy to have him join our team of consultants here at Beyond the Baselines and look forward to working with John. But without further ado, here's John Flaherty. Welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Shanafee, and today I'm really excited to have a, a great guest to, to talk to and uh, discuss marketing in tennis and golf and other sports. Uh, John Flaherty, he was um, a junior competitor of mine. Uh, we met uh, many, many moons ago when we were both juniors up in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Uh, I, I was an assistant pro up there at Silver Spring Country Club. John was a member. Thank you. John, you still are a member, right? I still am, yes. Yep. And uh, we'll discuss that later. But John went on to Old Dominion University where he played uh, D1 tennis and uh, is a fantastic tennis player, but took his tennis to a new level in terms of the marketing side of things, which is what we look at, at beyond the baselines. And uh, I'm really excited to have John on the, on the program today. Uh, John, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ed, for having me. So my first question is, is is let's start broadly and talk about because you've seen on both sides of the uh, the equation tennis and golf obviously there's two the two main sports of any country club but when you market to them in terms of rolex and when you were there and in terms of other uh i guess fast-moving consumer goods that you've you've seen and worked with 
how do how do you market differently to those demographics and those different audiences between golf and tennis? You know, if we're looking at it straight, uh, excuse me, strictly from uh, a media outlet perspective, you know, we would, at least uh, when I was at at the company, use different um, timepieces um, to uh, feature um, to a, a different audience. So, for example, you know, we looked at the golf community uh, as having a little bit more disposable income uh, than the tennis community. Uh, we did realize that there was some overlap uh, between the two audiences um, and that people uh, would engage in, in both pursuits, um, but that golf, uh, people were more inclined to spend um, higher amounts of money and, and make a, a purchase of a timepiece uh, that was a little bit more expensive uh, in terms of the precious metals. It may be, for example, a, a white gold Samariner as opposed to a stainless steel Samariner. Um, the, the, the tennis demographic um, was a little bit more athletic. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, they gravitated more towards the professional watches like a Daytona, uh, a GMT, um, as I said, a Samariner, uh, where the golf community um, would would wear uh, something more or less uh, in the Oyster Perpetual line uh, yeah. that was a little bit more, how should I say, um, reserved and uh, uh, a little slimmer uh, on the wrist, if you will, not um, as as generous, uh, shall we say, of a, of a watch case. So Okay, so uh, the, the, the Perpetual line... I saw that advertised. I mean, I was watching uh, the Tennis Channel, and that was on the Tennis Channel just a, a few days ago. But normally, I haven't seen that. So you're saying that is a, that was a line that was, you know, aimed more at golf. Yes. For example, the the, the president's uh -huh. uh, watch. I, you know, whether it's an 18 karat um, uh, yellow gold um, or white gold, um, or uh, you know, maybe uh, it is a uh, Daytona, but uh, one that's in platinum. Uh, that's one that uh, Grigor Dimitrioff uh, frequently wears. He is a testimony of, of Rolex. Um, and, you know, that starts uh, around $75,000, you know, as opposed to, you know, a, a stainless steel Submariner um, that's $9,000 um, or, you know, possibly uh, a Daytona uh, stainless steel. Uh, that's you know in the neighborhood of twelve to fourteen thousand um, dollars. So you would see more the the, the CEO um, playing golf, and and those timepieces um, were were generally advertised to them uh, as opposed to tennis. And if you look back at, some, at at and you look at some of the current issues in in, in golf magazine or, or tennis, um, you definitely can see that distinction uh, between the timepieces. Um, that are included uh, in, the, in the print advertising, um, as well as those that you'll see featured uh, in some of the commercial spots, whether it is on a, on a tennis channel, like uh, what you had seen, or during one of the golf majors. Right. Yeah. Now, in terms of numbers of events, uh, I think we had talked briefly last week, but you, you said that you had seen Rolex popping up again as sponsors of some te new tennis events, or events they had done in the past, and they're now back to but in terms of numbers of actual events, do they do more events for golf? Do they do more events for tennis? Obviously, the seasons are both very long. You know, yeah. 
that's been a discussion going on between the players, among the players uh, for years, how long the season is. But has Rolex and have they done more events for the golf or are there more events for tennis or are they coming back into tennis and how, how are they looking towards the future, do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, during my tenure there, especially at the outset, it was primarily golf um and uh tennis um was really uh secondary uh mm-hmm. to to their primary interest uh but now you've seen uh tennis take on greater importance um i think that uh is is due to two factors uh one um roger federer um you know he he, he is not just a swiss uh phenomenon but uh you know an international one and mm-hmm. Um, he has been with Rolex uh, since uh, 2003, and um, uh, they realize, um, you know, that there's uh, a great importance to promote him around the game and to be closer um, tied into the game. Uh, so when I was there, there were only two Grand Slams that Rolex sponsored, uh, Wimbledon, uh, which they, they've been the official timekeeper of since uh, 1978, and that's really when their tennis sponsorship started. Um, and then uh, the Australian Open uh, in the early aughts, um, they had uh, gone into agreement with them to be the official timekeeper. And then in uh, 2018, uh, returning to the U.S. Open, um, where they had been uh, when it was at the West Side Tennis Club, and then for two years when it was in Flushing Meadows, uh, the current location. Uh, and then the last piece. Of the Grand Slam puzzle, um, becoming the official timekeeper of the French Open in 2019. Um, so the, the the number of events uh, has grown to to equal that um, of golf, um, because Rolex, uh, when it comes to golf, um, they are with three of the four majors. Um, they are present at the Ryder Cup when it's in Europe um, versus when it's in the U.S. Um, that um, Categories held by by another watch competitor, um, but when it comes to the PGA Tour, where they're they're the official timekeeper of the tour, they're not every at every event. Um, they're only at their premier events, uh, meaning the um, WGCs, the World Golf Championships, uh, and the Players Championship. Um, the idea right. is not to have the ubiquitous president uh, presence, excuse me, but to have more of a selective presence. Um, but you know, when, when I've been watching tennis channel recently, um, you know, I've seen Rolex, um, really expand that presence in tennis, um, to include more than the grand slams, more than uh, the masters 1000 uh, events. I've seen them at some of the, uh, tour events the the 500 level events, um, which you did not see, um, uh, previously. So uh, I think um, their involvement in tennis. Uh, continues to grow over the years. It's funny that added. You know, you bring up a point. They've just added the French Open, which, in some ways, uh, is the most intimate of the of the Grand Slams. I think it's the, the probably the least attended in terms of actual numbers. The uh, U.S. Open is so big in terms of numbers. Wimbledon has the panache. The French Open is is kind of that intimate uh, Grand Slam. And yet probably for, for an, a universe to advertise to, it's probably the smallest. But I always would have thought that they would have been there perhaps first because it's, you know, it's so eclectic. 
on the red clay and it's it's small and intimate and but you're saying they've just really added that in 2019 as the last piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I think that there are there are two things um, at play. Um, number one um, was that uh, Long Jeans, uh, which had had that category sponsorship, uh, was a French brand, and they had wanted to see um, a French brand um, in that in that category space. Right. Um, you know, for, for the same reasons that, uh, Lacoste, um, you know, is associated with the, with the French open. Uh, and then, uh, I think the, the other, um, is, um, the, the stadium, um, Mm -hmm. where, um, the other venues have, uh, you know, made enhancements, right? Wimbledon expanded, uh, uh, the grounds that they upgraded the facilities, they, they installed um, uh, two retractable roofs uh, on stadium courts. Um, the uh, U.S. Open um, had installed a, a new Louis Armstrong Stadium. Uh, they they installed a retractable roof over Arthur Ashe. Right. Uh, and Rolex's timing was actually quite unique in that um, they returned as a sponsor uh, on the um, on the fiftieth anniversary of. Uh, the U.S. Open. Um, so that's one thing that's very strategic about that company. They're always looking for these definitive dates, um, and um, they were able to execute that sponsorship in time uh, for the celebration um, of the 50th year of, of U.S. Open tennis. Uh, and then the Australian Open had always been uh, a very contemporary, um, modern facility. I think they were the first ones really to uh, go in that direction. Uh, when they they moved the facility, um, which was originally played, you know, on the grass courts in, in Melbourne. So um, uh, the idea for Rolex is always to be associated with crown jewel events. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a play of words, um, but that's why uh, they wanted to be a part of all four majors. Uh, and I think the, the reason why the, the French Open was the last uh, uh, to become part of that. Um, if you will, that, 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 that grouping. Right. Okay. Well, I, I, I love all four. Everyone asks me what my favorite uh, Grand Slam is. I'm sure they ask you too. And I, I don't really have one. Um, they're all so different. And um, I, I just find the French really uh, like, almost like a family event. It's so small. It's almost like the Stella Artois. It uh, used to be the Stella Artois Queens Club um, in, in England. It's kind of that small feel at a, at a intimate, you know, venue. Um, but let me, let me move on a little bit to the overlap. And I think this is a really in, intriguing and interesting question. When you, when you said that golf and, and tennis has a major overlap, so it does. And in our business, Beyond the Baselines, we're, you, we're, we're working with clubs that have both golf and tennis. And we wonder continuously what the overlap, one of the first questions we go into to a club with is, What's your overlap between golf and tennis playing members? You know, do, 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 is there a 60% overlap of members that play both sports? Is it less than that? Uh, there's no right or wrong question. But when you look at the overlap in terms of business marketing, um, when you're, you're picking a universe, how do you figure out or do you look at the numbers of, of, of are you getting an overlap by going to, the, just for example, this is the week of the Honda Classic. I wonder how many 
people going to the Honda Classic also play tennis? It, it's an amazing question. I wish we had market data on it. We don't really have it, but what are your thoughts on that? Like if you go out to a golf tournament as a, as a sponsor, are you looking for that kind of overlap or those numbers you crunch and look at? Uh, not, not per se. I mean, during, during my time, again, for, for Rolex, it was, it was more about being affiliated with the crown jewel events, right? Okay. The ones yep. that, that um, were really, uh, you know, you use the term, the creme de la creme, right? The, 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 the top, uh, uh, in the industry, uh, because the idea was to create a parallel uh, with the brand, saying, "Okay, well, look, you've achieved great success. Um, it, you know, it, you could be celebrating a, a monumental occasion, whether it's a promotion, or a birthday, but the fact that you know you've reached the top of your game, uh, and and this is why um, you know you should buy a, a Rolex um, for the same reason why they've signed." Uh, Ambassadors, the term that they use, testimonies, um, taking taken from a French term, um, to promote the brand. You know, the Roger Federer's, um, the uh, the the uh, Carolyn Wozniacki's, the Justine Hennens, the Chris Everts, um, you know, the Rod Lavers, uh, the Bjorn Borgs, you know, who are all part of the Rolex family. In, you know, in, in tennis and then in golf. You look at the big three, you know, the, the Palmer, the player, the necklace, um, the modern big three, if you will, um, which is, uh, you know, they say is, is you know, Tom Watson, uh, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, uh, to the young guns, uh, you know, that, that are out there now, the Justin Thomas, the Ricky Fowlers, um, to the Jordan Speed. Um, so they're all at the top of their game. The Brooks Koepka, um, can't leave him out. Um, so uh, when... You see them wearing the the brand, you know. You can immediately identify with success, and that's what they were that they were trying to achieve. So, um, yes, the numbers are important. Um, you know, there's there's great brand exposure um, by having um, the Rolex clocks um, at the courses, um, right. at right. the venues, at the tennis venues. Um, you know, that that does um, generate a lot of impressions. Um, and that's all very well and good, but it's, again, it's really about being af affiliated with a top tier event, you know, something that's, that's quite unique. Um, so, uh, you know, Rolex, um, as I said, is very selective about which events they look at. Um, so, um, there are some events on the PJ tour, like a Honda classic, you know, where they will have a presence and other times, um, you know, they won't. Uh, and, and again, it, it just depends on um, how that event is perceived uh, and really, you know, whether or not, um, you know, it, it is an event um, that is on a lot of people's radar. Really. Right. Well, you, you moved right in so nicely to my next question, which basically talks more, more about the persona uh, of the player and, and the people involved. You mentioned some of the golfers, and obviously Roger Federer, uh, you've discussed that already about him being, you know, Swiss. Um, but Tiger Woods over here on the U.S. side, you know, with his fantastic run for, for, for those many years, um, I believe now he's back with Rolex. And, yeah. and, and what I'm looking at is how has the sport, or both sports really, how, how have they grown 
in terms of marketability. And on the tennis side, I think we're watching probably what is going to be the all-time golden age of tennis with Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer um, just being a trio of probably three of the best ever. I mean, whoever the best is, is always a wonderful question, but all three of them are right there at the top. Uh, whereas I think Tiger was by himself there. And did, 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 that, did that create a, an easier marketability for, for a brand like Rolex compared to having a triumvirate at the top? What would your thoughts of that be? Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I do think, um, you know, Tiger Woods is quite unique. Um, as well as, as Roger Federer. Um, you know, both sports um, have experienced peaks and valleys. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to say, um, you know, if, if tennis um, or, or golf, for that matter, um, you know, is, has, has reached um, another peak. Um, you know, when Tiger Woods won the Masters, you know, you saw the tennis ratings um, skyrocket, right? When he's in contention for any event, um, uh, for the British Open, which he, which he almost won, uh, you know, the ratings were, were double what they were uh, the prior year. Same thing for uh, the, the PGA, you know, when Brooks Gepka edged him out uh, for, for his first uh, PGA championship, you know, the ratings were double. Um, when Roger Federer um, and Nadal are in a final, um, same thing occurs there. You know, ratings um, jump dramatically. Uh, so, uh, you know, in terms of how it's looked at, at, you know, from an international perspective to how it's looked at in the U.S., I think it is also another factor uh, to consider. You know, when we had uh, what was considered the golden age of tennis for Americans, um, you know, with the Jim Couriers, the Andre Agassi, uh, <laughs> Pete Sampras, you know, Michael, Michael Chang, uh, Todd Martin, you know, the question was, you know, well, what, why is, why is tennis uh, losing appeal here in, in the U S um, everybody thought that, you know, you would need to have a U.S. superstar. Um, you know, they look at that, that now, and I, I don't think that's really the case. Um, you know, it has, it is such a, a global, uh, sport. And, you know, I really think it comes down to those who are playing it and, and the personalities um, that are involved. And, and going back to Tiger Woods, you know, he's an incredibly great player, but he's also a great personality. And I think that's what that's what really helps the sport. Yep. And the marketing and, and the marketability of that sport and the marketability by a brand, really. Oh, without, without question. And, you know, for Rolex, the reason why uh, I. Roger Federer made great sense is because he's so polished, he's so professional. Um, you know, I really had um, the great opportunity uh, to meet him on a couple of occasions. And he was always very humble, um, but very generous with his time. Um, and I remember the first time uh, I had met him uh, was at Wimbledon. Um, I would travel uh, over um, to the Grand Slam. Uh, uh, to either work with uh, my counterparts on TV agreements um, or basically to host uh, Americans who um, were our best customers here uh, uh, overseas. Uh, but 
there was this one instance when he was in the Rolex suite where he was speaking German uh, to someone who was visiting from the German um, operation. Then he, he turned and he was speaking French to, to someone else. Uh, then he was immediately able to pivot uh, when he was introduced to me and, and speak with me in English. Um, so he's a great ambassador for the sport. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think of tennis nowadays, yeah, they think of uh, obviously the big three being Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. But, uh, you know, I think Federer's presence is, is going to carry on uh, for much longer than his, his other two uh, colleagues in the sport. You make a good point that he's professional, and, 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 and so many players on both sides of, of golf and tennis are professional, and I, I'm not sure that our audience always understands how, how many rules and regulations there are. For example, the ATP, you can't take pictures of a player with a product or a brand um, you know, during a tournament venue. It just, there, there are so many rules and regulations that players can fall afoul of as you know, trying to brand it. Uh, and, and the more professional players, the more they understand that, the more they, they realize the sponsorship and the, and the funds involved and that the tour is there for a protection of, of the tour brand and also protection of the players. But a lot of times uh, players don't realize that, but the likes of Federer and, and, and Woods and, and Nadal, and they're just so professional, they get that whole side of the, quote-unquote, business of the tour. Yeah, that's true. Uh, here's, I think the best example I can give to really uh, differentiate between the two sports um, is, to, is to use um, an anecdote from, from my time when, when I was with you know, the leading luxury uh, timepiece manufacturer. Um, you know, the, the tennis professionals, uh, for the most part, you know, I, I think are, are a little bit how do how should I say it? Um, can be a little bit more Im immature than 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 the golf uh, professionals. And, and what I mean by that is a Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, or Jordan Spieth. They know how the business works, right? Um, they get done with a round. They immediately go in. They sign their card and they they put on the Rolex timepiece because it's in the contract that they have to wear it for any media opportunity, right? And they right, know they're right. going to be interviewed after their round. So they do. Um, for any uh, sponsorship shoot, that's not necessarily with Rolex. Um, let's say it's one of, with one of the club manufacturers. All right. They know they have to wear their timepiece. When they're being interviewed um, for a magazine piece, they're always wearing their timepiece. Where on the tennis side, what we noticed was that the tennis players needed constant reminding. The one who is, is really the great archetype is Roger Federer. You didn't have to tell him. He knew to do that. And I would always receive um, uh, texts, emails from people uh, immediately after he had won a title, like let's say the U.S. Open. You know, without hesitation, he'd have that timepiece on his wrist. And, you know, there was maybe 15 seconds that he had to go to his bag, you know, put his racket down, uh, towel off, uh, and put on that timepiece, but he did it. Um, where some of the other testimonies, um, it wasn't such a conditioned response. And unfortunately, um, they would appear without it. Um, so, you know, that's, the, that's the, 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 the difference that I saw was the, the maturity level um, between the professionals. That's a great, great anecdote there. And, and, and it is so true. 
Um, one of my anecdotes was uh, my wife at one time had a had to try to get a picture with Andy Murray and a brand that she was representing. And the ATP tour was, this was a Queens club. The ATP tour was constantly saying, no, it wasn't allowed. wasn't allowed. And she snuck out there and got it done, but it's not that easy. And, and on the other side for players to uh, remember to wear, you know, the, the, the logo at the certain time for the certain interview, it's all part of professionalism. And we as an audience, miss that a lot but on the business side in the business side of things you're you are so right you're amazed at how many texts you get when someone does wear their timepiece at the right time and how it helps how it helps you in your business yeah you know when when tiger woods captured his 15th grand slam right um and is i believe his fifth green jacket um at augusta national they had said the media value of him wearing or his his Rolex timepiece um, was two point two million dollars just by him holding up. Um, you know they have a ceremonial trophy. Yes, it's it's the green jacket that's put on, but there's a ceremonial ceremonial trophy. Um, and that shot afterwards, and that picture that was that was used and circulated uh, around the um, uh, uh, the globe uh, via the internet. They said. Uh, had had media impressions worth 2.2 million dollars so um for the amount that they invest um in in sponsoring these players um it's the return is is exponentially greater um than what they put into it so you know that's a great credit uh to rolex um and you know why they're really at the top of their game so let's bring it back to the country club side of things yeah and and what we do so we've, we've discussed how you brand uh uh, a special timepiece discuss um, demographics and audiences, but in terms of the country club uh, and you being uh, so involved, you, you, you run a USDA team uh, up in your native Connecticut there. Uh, and, and, and you've been part of the tennis business, I'd say on the business side of things for a long, long time. You, you, you taught as well. Uh, how have you seen the, the marketing of clubs? So for example, clubs, you know, went through this, this process of, of having a, a membership dropping and now maybe starting to see a, a re-energization, if that's a word, of, of memberships. Um, how have you seen the country club business evolving over, say, the last 10 to 15 years? And, and do you, anything of note that you'd like to, to point out to us? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Um, generally, the, the the new membership uh, at all these clubs are necessarily the golf fanatics uh, that we had seen uh, when we were younger. You know, mm -hmm. they talk about rounds being down, um, so they've increased membership because they know the members aren't playing golf as much as they used to. Um, you know, I know from working with the different NGBs in both the golf and tennis industry that what's considered a golfer is someone who plays nine times a year, right? Um, it gets, get, gets in nine rounds. Tennis is someone who picks up a racket eight times a year, right, and goes goes out and play. Uh, um, you know, I assume for for a minimum of an hour. You know, so I, I think those, you know, that data, um, you know, is uh, used very uh, liberally. But um, I would say, you know, really uh, in terms of a participation, really with tennis and golf, uh, you know, I, I don't think you have as many people 
um, uh, or the numbers, I should say, of, of active players as great as they were um, when we were younger, you know, back, back, back in the 80s. I, I completely agree. I, I actually, it's funny as, as director in the summer, um, where I am, we, one of the primary factors of a good tournament is that it is done by 1 PM on a Saturday. And I remember as, uh, as a kid, when, in, with you growing up uh, in Westchester County, there in Fairfield County, Connecticut, there, it was a two day member guest on the tennis side. I know it was a three day member guest on the golf. Now we're lucky if the member guests last till 2 p.m. on one day from, you know, 9 to 2, not even 8 a.m. Um, yeah. and, and, and we've noticed on the, on the tennis business side of things that a lot of the, the and I'm sure it's the same on golf, and may, please make a comment if you know, if, if you've seen it yourself, but on the, te- on the tennis side, a lot of the members are just picking up a phone and saying, I want to hit, I want to hit for an hour and a half hour, and that's why the tennis staff has grown because – these members don't want to go play for three hours. They want to play for a quick 45 minutes to an hour with a pro, get a workout and get back to their families. And the idea of a two day tennis tournament has really, has really gone by the wayside over the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, I, w- I would agree with all that. Also from what I've seen just at, at my club, um, I've seen a dramatic drop uh, in the number of um male members playing tennis and an exponential increase, a dramatic increase um, in the number of female um, members who, who play tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in golf, um, I've seen, I would say the, the, the demographic um, that is a 55 plus, um, you know, I've seen them maintain um, you know, the, the number of female golfers that there are, but, um, the younger, uh, demographic, um, the new members that are coming in, I don't see, um, there being, um, an increase or, or a good representation of, of women, uh, playing golf. So it's, 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 it's on the golf side, at least it's become less of a, of a, of a couple's event, um, with, and, and, you know, in, in tennis, again, it's, it's not couples playing, but I've definitely seen um, a very clear delineation between the two sports and who gravitates um, to them the most. Um, I do also think, you know, time is a factor as well, and that's led to the, the decrease in golf. Um, to try to encourage someone to go out and, you know, play golf for four or five hours uh, and, you know, be away from their family. Um, you know, it's quite uh, a challenge and it's quite taxing uh, for the community. I, I would think for that reason, you know, tennis would become uh, more popular. Um, you know, you can get a great workout in uh, anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes. It's very social. Um, you know, you, you can get couples playing it. Um, you know, there, there are different levels of abilities out there. Um, but, you know, we live in such um, a time crunch world now that, I would think that tennis has, you know, um, a unique opportunity uh, to pull, pull more people into the into the sport, not just at at the club level, but you know, also at, at public facilities as well. Well, I, I agree, and, and and I think that's why pickleball has taken off. If you, if you look at the sure. graphic of pickleball, it's a lot of families that play together, and yeah. it's not like we're back in the day when I was a kid. 
dad would go out and play seven to 12 in the morning. He'd have his foursome on, the, on Saturday morning, come back after lunch. It was 2 p.m. Now, instead, families want to play pickleball at 9 a.m. altogether. Um, and I think tennis has that opportunity to pickleball. I see it even more so. But I think tennis, as you say, has that. The Silver Spring, your club, have, does it have uh, pickleball? It does not have pickleball. Uh, a lot of the clubs, uh, I've yet to see it introduced at the clubs in, in Westchester, <clears throat> excuse me, in Fairfield County. Um, you know, I, I do think a lot of the, uh, the tennis players, um, and I would think that tennis only clubs or tennis and, and, and swim clubs um, would be reluctant to introduce that um, because they have. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I, I think a, 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 a dyed in the wall tennis player is not going to play pickleball. I, I, I almost, I mean, it's not, nothing's 100%, but I, I agree with you on that point. In terms of the club business, and you play at a lot of different clubs. Um, and I think the rise of, of platform tennis or paddle tennis, as we call it in New England, that, that has become so popular. And that is based around a more social, uh, it's, a, it's a social happening. Yep. And, and I think a strong tennis department, um, and I'll take, make an example. If you have a ladies team, and ladies, as you say, are, are so numerous now, but you have a ladies team that has practiced from 9 to 10.30. At 10.30, they boom, they're out of the club. They go back to, you know, wherever they need to be, uh, back at their office because a lot of women work now or back, you know, running errands for the family or whatever they, they, they want to do at 10.30. However, if you change that practice to 10.30 to 12, we've noticed that it, it, it's more social and socially inclusive because those – those ladies go and have lunch at the club. The, right. the club is open for lunch and they off, off, off they go. Same thing on the paddle tennis side where it's become Monday night football. It's become Thursday night football. You're playing paddle, you're watching the game during, you know, the cooler season. Um, have you seen changes at the, at the clubs? You, you know, I, I think it used to be that the men's teams would go and play. And I played there years ago go play in Westchester after the match on a Wednesday night, we'd all get up and leave. But now I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a much more social sport. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, very, very much so. Not, you know, I gravitated to, you know, that discipline a little bit later in life. Um, you know, uh, like you, you know, I was playing indoor tennis uh, mm -hmm. in the winter. Um, and when I was living in the city, it was not as popular. Um, you know, if it wasn't tennis, um, anybody who um, had hand-eye coordination uh, and was interested in racket sports, um, you know, would play squash uh, right. as an alternative uh, to tennis. Uh, the interesting thing about platform tennis is um, it pulls in, in a larger swath, if you will, of, of members at, at the club. So you have a lot of golfers that play because they can't play golf. Uh, in the winter because the course is closed. Um, and uh, just like golf, they enjoy the social element. Um, that, that's part of the game. And you're right. Um, almost every night uh, of, of the week, um, uh, there's something going on um, at our club. Uh, our club used to have only two paddle uh, courts or platform tennis courts, now has four. Uh, the reason being that in order to have a team and compete in the league. You need a minimum of uh, three courts. Um, you know, so they um, uh, expanded uh, the facility and then uh, they raised and uh, then erected 
uh, a new uh, paddle hut, which has a large um, screen TV, uh, to your point about watching the football game. So everybody will congregate uh, inside the paddle hut uh, after play and, and have refreshments and, and watch the game, uh, as opposed to where uh, they may have gone to uh, one of the local restaurant establishments uh, in town. You know, now they'll stay there and, and they'll commiserate, you know, about their, their day or their game. <laughs> Uh, you know, inside the uh, inside the, the paddle hut facility. So yes, I definitely see uh, that expand. Um, you know, and uh, I know, uh, you know, in in terms of uh, numbers, yes, uh, it continues to grow. Um, and you know, it's interesting to see um, these other racket sports uh, come into existence. You know. Um, you know, you mentioned pickleball. The other one that's very big in Europe started in Latin America. You, you may have heard it or, or, or seen it. it Patel, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I've seen it uh, played uh, down in, in southern Florida. And I think eventually um, it will grow uh, nationwide. And it may even rival uh, platform tennis uh, as something to participate uh, in the winter. I, so, see, I see uh, Padel. I see Padel really becoming a the new squash um it could in a in a way but you, you, those those indoor sports in the winter for the racket for the racket mad types i think it, it is a great sport for that um in wrapping up uh you've been around the business for so many years you, you've been on on the tennis side you've you've played on the collegiate side you've you, you're playing now you've been on the business side what do you see as a the biggest obstacle for let's put it as country club tennis and what do you feel is the biggest advantage that country club tennis has at, at this point in time right now hmm. well uh let me start off uh with the disadvantage because that immediately comes to mind and i've seen it firsthand at my club look i know golf is the priority at, at country club at tennis and swim clubs, obviously tennis is, is the priority. Um, you know, so it's there's not as much of a challenge. But definitely at, at country clubs, um, you know, golf does take uh, that that primary interest. Um, I think people join a country club with with having a, a greater intention of playing golf. They figure if I'm going to invest uh, this much money in in a club. Uh, that has golf. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to play. I'm going to play golf. Um, it's you know, it's also not as uh, rigorous uh, physically, and uh, as as far as uh, talent and skill, I think golf is is easier to pick up, uh, and it, it also has that that, that social element um, that that's built into it. And look, you know, that there are a lot of individuals um, that need a break. Uh, you know, from their from their daily routine, um, from family life, um, and that gives them that that outlet. You know, to have that that four hours, they don't mind taking four hours um, away. Um, it actually makes them a better person. It's a healthy distraction. Uh, so that that that's what I see is is um, the biggest disadvantage. The advantage I think uh, the tennis has is you know they, they do have, as you mentioned. Um, this, this this period, this this golden age of tennis and professional tennis, and I think clubs 
need to tie in more with that. I think uh, the tennis pros need to be a little bit more proactive in getting people to come out and play. You know, I think they need to uh, encourage members who do play to bring in other members uh, uh, to play. Um, I think, you know, that they need to encourage um, the female members to uh, speak to their, uh, their other half and, and get them uh, to try tennis. Um, you know, even if it's uh, taking a, a private lesson or semi-private lesson with them for, for 30 minutes uh, to doing some, some clinics, you know, and to promote the, the health benefits of tennis. And that's something that golf has tried to do. You know, they realize that time is, is a major deterrent to golf. So they say, hey, you know, play nine. You don't have time, play nine, right? And they try to promote, hey, walking, it's good. You get exercise, you, you know. Um, oh, the, the nine and dines are getting very popular. Nine and dines. And, and I've always thought that, you know, 18 is too much. I, I'd like to have six and six, 12 holes. I, I get tired on the 13th hole. It's not for me. <laughs> well, I, you know, that you bring up a very good point because golf originally was only 12 holes. Um, you know, the RNA, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was created overseas. Um, the first British Open was only 12 holes, um, and, and I'm and I'm with you there. It would be, I think, it would be ideal if it were uh, only only 12 holes. Uh, and 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 some clubs now, uh, some resorts are, are selling that option that you know you can go out. You don't have to play 18. You can play six holes if you want. You can play 12 holes if you want. Uh, not the standard nine or 18. So I think tennis has has the advantage where look, you know, when it comes to to time, um, social. Uh, you know, uh, trying to learn a, a, a skill, you know, to, to appeal to, um, you know, the, the, the professional game um, and the success that's, uh, that's happening on both the men's and women's side. Um, you know, I think they can capitalize on, on that. But again, I think it, it really comes down to the, to the tennis directors, the pros that are involved to be more proactive. I, I agree, and, 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 and you know what's funny is you, you mentioned that when someone invests in golf, they invest in a club to play golf, and it goes back to the first point you made, which is, is so important, that, that you had earmarked that golfers, and I put that in quotation, have more disposable income, and I think a lot of it at the country club side, just as you so well pointed out, it comes down to what the club is pushing, and of course, the club is 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 revenue. Even though it, most of them are member owned uh, clubs, they 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 have to be run as a business, and you have to go after the business that has the most disposable income. And let's put it that way. And if you already noticed it in Rolex and then in the other brands and in your branding work, that the golf and golfers sport of golf tends to have more disposable income than a racket sport or tennis. And I think that brought it all the way back to the first point you made. And, and I think that is a big disadvantage to, to tennis, but I don't think it's not insurmountable. No, but I, I think you would agree. And again, just, just, you know, in conclusion here, um, saying that, you know, when we were younger, even though, um, you know, uh, we had the advantage of, of, of belonging to a country club and though golf, yes, is, is a primary revenue driver for the club, um, that the popularity of tennis back then hasn't been able to, uh, to, to be duplicated uh, now. I, you know, that even though golf was very important to a club, uh, the tennis scene was very active. 
Um, and, you know, yes, tennis heyday, um, you know, people have said uh, have, has passed, you know, but I definitely think uh, that the two can coexist, right? That you can have people who play golf, um, but also, you know, play tennis. Um, you know, that the club used to be really the, the epicenter, if you will, of, of uh, the member's life, um, where I think now um, it's become less so and people are forced to choose between the two. So, you know, I think if clubs embrace both and they're willing to promote both, um, that, you know, tennis can rival golf. And, you know, we will see those student participation levels return possibly to what they were um, in the 80s. Well, I, I, for one, I, in my business, I hope you're right. And for two, I think it would, it would be great for tennis to, to be as popular as it was in the 80s. John, it's been great having you on the, on the podcast. And uh, I, I thank, thank you for your time and your knowledge. And um, look forward to seeing you when you come back down to South Florida. Okay. Well, thanks, uh, Ed. Uh, it, it was really uh, a privilege to be able to, uh, uh, to speak with you uh, in this forum. And, you know, I do wish you much success. Uh, I will always be a great proponent of, of tennis. Uh, you know, I, I, I play both golf and tennis, but uh, my first love will always be tennis. And, uh, you know, I, I always want to see it uh, remain a very important part of the sports landscape. Thank you for listening to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm your host, Ed Shanahan, and it's a pleasure bringing you Every week, news and views and great guests from our tennis and fitness industry. You can always reach me at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or by phone at the office on 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website, beyondthebaselines.com. And on our site, there's a link to our Patreon page, which has even more information for you and your club and your facility in our wonderful industry. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.